Uh, great to be with you all this morning. Grateful to be with you all this morning. Very grateful, in fact. Um, we're moving into Lent. We're starting a new sermon series. Going to look at the book of Exodus. Some of you will know that biblically, Lent corresponds to Jesus' 40 days of fasting out in the desert. Uh, you can read about that in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. Um, and that actually, that 40 days in the desert, that corresponds to Israel's 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness, which you read about in the book of Exodus. That happened many, many centuries before. And we're going to be looking at those uh, time, life and times of Israel out in the wilderness in this sermon. We're going to be looking at, at some of the astounding, eye-popping stories from Israel's time in the wilderness. Uh, it was a time where God was teaching them the ways of true life. That's what was going on out there in the desert. And uh, so a key theme of this sermon series is that it is often out in the wilderness where we learn to bear the fullness of God's life in our ordinary lives. It's often out in the wilderness where we learn to bear the fullness of God's life in our ordinary lives. That's what's happening with Israel in the book of Exodus. Uh, and that's what happens to us. So keep that idea in your minds for the next uh, Sunday, the Sundays between now and Easter as we return again and again to Exodus and some of these stories. Let me pray now before I say anything else. Lord God, as the scripture has been open for us, send your spirit to open our hearts to your word. Lord, send your spirit to open our hearts to your word. That we may receive it and digest it and that it would bring us into true life. That's what we need. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so if you've ever read the book of Exodus or seen the Disney movie, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but they did an animation of, of this, Joseph, the Joseph story, I guess. Um, you will know that it has a really bleak beginning. The children of Israel, the Hebrew people, find themselves in Egypt, and they're not living the good life. They are enslaved. It was horrible, and in fact, it was horrific, as slavery often is. But God loves them, and God sees their plight, and God intervenes to bring them out of that state of oppression and into a state of true life. And he does that through a man called Moses. And it was an extraordinary affair. There was a lot of power, power from God on display, and eventually, in response to God's power, Pharaoh, the, the brutal ruler of Egypt, let the Hebrew people go. He let the Israelites go. It was like a day of jubilation and celebration. It was like their 4th of July. And just like we do on the 4th of July, they wrote songs to sing, to commemorate this day. You read one of those songs in Exodus 15. They sang, we're going to sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is our strength and our song. He has become our salvation. Yes, he did. And they sang that song as they exodus out of Egypt and all the cities through the Red Sea. You know the story. The waters parted through the Red Sea out into the desert. And they sang that song as they ventured out into the wilderness. Dun, dun, dun. Um, and that's where they were going to live for the foreseeable future, for 40 years, in fact. They didn't know they were signing up for that, but that's what they were signing up for. And it was out there in the wilderness that they learned the ways of true life. You wouldn't think that looking at the wilderness, but that's where they learned the ways of true life. And it was not always easy. Why? Because in the Bible, the wilderness is a place where you don't have control. The wilderness is a place where you don't always have clarity. It's a place where you're vulnerable. It's a place where you get pressed by God. And that is what happened to the Israelite peoples out in the wilderness. That's what they experienced. But it's not all that they experienced because it was in the wilderness that they learned to commune with God, that they learned to rely on God in a powerful and intimate way. It was in the wilderness where God's heart and life were most intimately expressed to his people. 
It was in the wilderness where that happened. That's certainly what we see in today's story from Exodus 16. It's a riveting story. You've got it printed on an insert in your bulletin, so feel free to look at that as we go along the way because it is God's Word, which is the most important thing you're going to hear today. So keep that scripture nearby. In this chapter, we witness a sharp change. Israel's been singing as they marched out into the desert, but now all of a sudden their poetry and their praise turns to panic. The triumph of escaping from Pharaoh's clutches, passing through the Red Sea, it all begins to unravel into acute distress. Shut the front door. What is going on here? This is because there's an apparent food shortage, verse 3. And so what we discover is that it only takes one little episode to unmask deep inner turmoil, deep inner fear inside of the Israelite people. Been doing all this celebrating, triumphal marching, but actually deep inside there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of turmoil. And so one of the first things that God does is say, listen up, gang. What I'm going to be doing for the next little while is leading you away from this life of triumphant control and into a life where you trust me, where you rely on my provision. Because it is only as you do this that you will find the fullness for which we all long. So what does moving into that life of trusting God's provision entail? What does it mean to trust in His provision and to renounce certain kinds of control? We all need to do that. I need to do that. Based on what we see in today's story, there are two things we need to do. And by the way, I am still learning to do both of them. I'm still learning to do both of them. First thing you have to do, and let me just say right now, this is going to be a challenging sermon. We're in Lent. It's going to be a challenging sermon, okay? First thing you need to do is recognize your fears. We've got to recognize how deeply afraid we are. I've got to be honest about this. You have to see, and I mean really see, how much we live not by faith but by fear. I know everybody in here is, in, is afraid in some way of something, even if you don't show it. But let me just say this. You were not made to live in fear. That is why fear is so terrible. We were not made to live in fear. The Bible teaches that when God made us, He made us not for fear, but for feasting, for delight in Him. He made us to live these beautiful, creative lives where we are as carefree as children playing out on the playground, playing in the, the yard outside, frolicking in the woods. You ever seen a child doing that? They're carefree because they know someone's watching over them. Carefree and creative. That's what we were made for. She knows that. We were made for that. That's right. Nevertheless, there's fear. And here's how it goes. All of us, me, Clay, Chris, Jennifer, all of you guys too, all of us, and this is because of sin, we came to believe that God really wasn't going to take care of us. And so we reached out those anxious hands and we took that forbidden fruit. And then to our horror, we found that everything we thought was going to be gained was actually lost. That's what happened. Our relationships with ourselves were disrupted, our relationships with each other, our relationship and communion with God, our relationship with this beautiful world. It was all frustrated. And here's the thing. If you know what the Bible says, you know that we actually never really recovered from that fear. You see it all over the Bible. In the Old Testament, for example, you, you see it in Abraham and Sarah, these great pillars of the faith. They think that God is not going to provide for them, and so they do all kinds of crazy things. Some of those things you shouldn't talk about in polite company. Maybe I'm not in polite company, so I'm going to talk about it. 
Abraham slept with his wife's servant so they could try to have a baby because they didn't believe God would provide one. Crazy things. You see it in the New Testament. You see it with St. Peter. He was so scared that Jesus was going to forsake him, that Jesus would not emerge victorious through the cross, that he denied that he even knew Jesus. He was gripped in fear. Fear is everywhere in the Bible, and it is everywhere in our lives. We fear the loss of our minds and bodies. We fear the loss of our reputations, our friendships, our children, our resources, our lives. And you know what? From one angle, we're not fools to be afraid of all that because in the wake of sin, we do lose those things. That kind of loss has become very acute and real to me over the past few years. I've talked to, you, I've talked to some of you about that. Some of you know that too in your own way. And it's because of that loss and that fear that many of us wait, lay awake at night. We carry stress. We toil and anxiety, and it's awful. It's absolutely awful. But God loves you. God loves you and me so much. And because of that, he has promised that he's going to take away sin and he's going to restore everything that sin has taken away. And that's what he's done in Jesus. You see, when Jesus was raised from the dead, that was the, the great affirmation from God that all the messiness and brokenness in the world is not going to have the last word. It's not going to have the last word over us, over God. That was an affirmation that loss finally is going to be swallowed up by gain. That's what the resurrection means. And part of what this means, and I want you to listen up now, part of what this means is if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, which is what we're here to do, you're going to have to learn to trust that this is so. You're going to have to learn to trust that in God, all loss will ultimately be swallowed up in gain. And the first step to building that trust, and it's right out today's story, is to come to recognize where we don't trust God. Recognize your fear. Recognize the way that fear grips and shapes and sometimes dominates you. Do you, know how fear, do you notice how fear shows up in this passage? It shows up in three ways. Really important to catch this. First, fear shows up in delusion. This is my favorite. Fear leads us to be absolutely delusional. Look at verse, verse 3. Let me read that for you again. This is crazy. And the people of Israel grumbled to Moses. They said, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord back in Egypt, back in Egypt where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Now, there's something really interesting in that statement. Did you catch it? Does anyone remember anything about big pots full of meat and lots of bread back in Egypt? I don't remember that. What I remember back in Egypt was slavery and rape and hunger and overwork and genocide. That's what I saw in Egypt. But right now, in their fear, the Israelites are romanticizing their time back in Egypt, and it is a complete delusion. And why are they doing this? They're doing it because they're afraid. And fear makes us delusional. It makes us believe that what we had in the past, awful as it may have been, is better than what God wants us to have in the future. That's what fear does. I've done that my whole life. Fear has led me into a lot of horrible delusions. We think that what we had is better than what God wants us to have. We are all enslaved to that tendency in some way, shape, or form. But it's not just delusion that manifests fear in this passage. Fear also manifests itself in another thing, accusation. Did you notice the occasional repetition of the word grumble in today's reading? I'm sure Kim did. She said it eight times. Grumble, 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 grumble. That's what the Israelites do. When we are afraid, one thing we tend to do is to accuse other people. 
We accuse them of keeping our lives from everything we want them to be. We accuse other people of not looking out for us. We accuse them of being the real problem. We accuse God. We accuse each other. If it wasn't for you, my life would be great. It would be awesome. That is fear talking. We want somebody to blame, somebody to scapegoat. We want clarity. And let me say this. When that happens, we've got to be gracious to people. We've got to be gracious to each other because we all do that. Because when we do that, we are gripped by fear. We are gripped by fear, the fear that God and other people don't really care about us. I have lived in that place before, and I know all of you have too. Some of you are living there right now. It doesn't have to be that way. Third way fear manifests itself is in control. This comes out in verses 16 through 20. God says, okay, I've heard you grumbling. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to send meat from heaven. It's going to rain with quail. This is a quail hunter's paradise. Jeffers and I would have loved to have been there, though it wouldn't have taken much skill to shoot these quail because they were all over. You could just reach up your hand and grab one. And it wasn't just quail that was provided. It was also bread, plenty of bread, fresh bread every day. And what did the Israelites do? Not what God instructed them to do. They think and said, I'm going to do something different. God says, just get the bread you need for each day. There'll be more tomorrow. That's not what they do. They gathered up extra bread because they did not trust that God would provide bread. And what happened? The extra bread they gathered up, it bred worms and it stank. And Moses gets angry with them because they're trying to control things. And it all goes rotten. It doesn't just stink. There are worms. Overnight there are worms. It's insta-worm. You ever seen that? And that is so often what happens when I try to take control. I think, God, you're not really going to take care of me, so I'm going to hold on to this little part by myself, and it turns rotten. I've ended up in a few jobs because of that, really rotten jobs because I didn't really trust God. So it comes to this. God loved the Israelites, and God loves you. And because he loves you, he wants you to see the way that your fear manifests itself through delusional fantasies, through a tendency to grumble and complain and accuse, through an impulse to control things. And so here's a question for you. Did you recognize fear in this passage? And more importantly, do you recognize fear in your lives? That's part of why we have this passage. It's God's way of helping us to recognize our fears. Trusting in God begins by being honest where we don't trust him. Honest about where we don't trust him. I'll let you take a breath real quick. I'm going to have a drink of water. Let's mosey along. Second thing we have to do, we recognize our fears, but we also turn and return to God's feast. Another big theme in this story. Because trusting... God, coming to trust in His provision, is not just about seeing something empty in ourselves, seeing fear in ourselves, but it's also about looking beyond ourselves to God and coming to know God as the only one who can really fill us, as the one whose care and love can cast out all fear. This is the mega theme of the Bible. Go back to Abraham and Sarah real quick. It's only when Abraham and Sarah finally renounce their impulse to control that God fills them. He actually gives them a baby themselves in their crazy old age. They stop doing crazy things, God starts doing marvelously wonderful crazy things. They have little baby Isaac. And then back in the New Testament, St. Peter, you know, he denied Jesus because he was so scared Jesus wasn't going to be victorious over the cross, so he denied him. But if you go to the end of John's Gospel, you see Peter sitting by a campfire on the shore. Jesus is cooking and literally feeding him. He turned back to the feast of God, called out his fear. And that's the movement that we all have to make. 
we don't just recognize our fear, we also turn from fear to God's feast again and again and again. I've already had to do it three times this morning. And this is something you see in today's passage. Verse 10, this is a key moment for Israel. They've been looking back to Egypt longingly, thinking about all that delicious food that they never actually had there. And now they look out into the wilderness, verse 10. They looked toward the wilderness. That's a key movement. you got a Bible, underline that verse. We all have to make that movement. Memorize that verse. They looked to the wilderness. That's what we have to do. We have to turn to God in the wilderness areas of our lives. And what happens when we do that? Two things happen. First, we learn who God is. In the initial part of Exodus 16, the Israelites are thinking some dirty thoughts about God. This is what they're thinking. They're thinking, God, you brought us out here to kill us and our children. You're going to let us starve to death. You're actually worse than the Egyptian slave drivers who did actually kill our children. That's what they're thinking. That's what they're feeling. And then they look out into the wilderness and they see the glory of the Lord. And Moses and Aaron go on to declare, guess what? You're about to really see God as he truly is, and he is not as you feared he was. And I know so many of you think, God's going to forsake me. His whole goal is to humiliate me so that he can teach me some sort of righteous lesson or something like that. No. No. God loves you. And if you can look away from all the fantasies, from all the fears, into the wilderness and find him in that place, because he's there, he will reveal his glory to you. You do not have to be afraid because God loves you and he wants you to flourish as people. And if you look to him and if you wait on him, that will be your destiny. Second thing that they get by looking in the wilderness, they see not just who God is, but also they receive what they need. They receive what they need. That's verses 13 through 16. It is not in Egypt, which we would think of as the land of plenty. It's not out there that they find what they need. It's actually as Israel goes into the wilderness that they encounter the feast of God. Every time Israel stopped looking back at Egypt and moved into the wilderness in faith, they found a table there, and it was always full. It was always full. There was flaky bread every morning. I like to think maybe it was like croissant bread, kind of flaky. I think when it comes to God and cooking, the French are probably closest to God. That's why I married a French woman. (laughs) There was bread bread on the ground, plenty of bread for everybody. Everybody had plenty all the time. There was meat from the sky. That is what the wilderness offered them. So it was what was out there in that barren and uncertain place, the abundant table of God. That's what they found in the wilderness, not in Egypt, in the wilderness. And so it's in, in some, it's by looking to the wilderness that we see who God really is and that we receive what we need, and that is how we become ourselves. That is how we become the people we're meant to be, the people of God. That's how it happens. That's how we become to be people who, who don't just carry the name Christian, but who are Christians, people like Jesus, because he knew God, and he received everything he needed from God. And that's all that God wants. That's the, that's the point of the test in the wilderness. The, ver, the, the word test is there in verse 4 of this passage. God is testing the people. That's the purpose of the test. It's God's way of saying, I want to see if these people are willing to trust me, willing to walk by faith. I want to see if they're really prepared to be the people that they were created to be, if they want to have true life, because that is not going to happen unless I'm at the center. That's what God's doing. Now, in wrapping up, I'm going to offer a little bit of application First, let's think about um, recognizing our fears. I know you are afraid. You're afraid of so many things. You're afraid that you're ugly. 
that your body isn't right, that what you do doesn't actually matter. You're afraid that uh, somebody, out, out, somebody else out there knows how to do this thing really well and you don't, that somebody out there is the perfect parent. If you can just find that mommy blog, it'll be the silver bullet. You're looking for that. You're full of fear. You're, we're, we're afraid of our friends. We're afraid of our friends actually knowing about our addictions. We're afraid of them knowing about the shame in our lives and the reasons that we carry that shame. We're afraid of being sick. We're afraid of being rejected by our kids. We're afraid of death. We are so afraid. So many of us in so many different ways are captive to fear. It's all over my own life. I look back and I see how many decisions I've made based on fear, not faith. And as I sit down and talk to you as a pastor, I see it all over your lives too. You know this. And so we've got to help one another recognize the fears. We've got to help each other recognize the delusions because they're out there. And those delusions that we have, they never deliver. If my children would just do what I tell them, I'll be full. If my church would just do exactly what I think it should do, I'll be full. If I can just get the right person in office or if my spouse would just conform to what I want them to be, that'll be awesome. I'll be full. Those are just fantasies. We have to help one another disavow them and say no to them. And we've got to help each other move away from the habits of criticism and accusation. We have those habits. It's not all that surprising we have those habits. Uh, just look at, turn on the TV and radio in this country, especially during election season. It's like we are a nation of accusation. We go on and on about how stupid everybody else is. It's abject terror. That's what's behind it. Do not mistake that for strength. That's not strength. That's fear. And we've got to help each other with control. We can be some controlling people. We can be passive-aggressive. Yes, we do live in South Carolina. Southerners are known for that. Sorry for you Northerners. I hope you don't pick up that bad habit from us when you're down here. We can talk over each other. We can manipulate each other. We can be deceptive. We can lie. And you know what? That's fear too. We've got to help each other renounce that by recognizing it and seeing it. And when we do that, it can actually be a beautiful thing because we, when we see and recognize fear in each other, it can evoke compassion. When you see a kid doing strange things, it's often because they're scared. And you respond how? With compassion. You respond with compassion. We've got to do that for each other. And then there's the feasting. What's the application here? How can you feast on God right now, starting this week? That looks good. I want to have that for lunch. Well, for starters, you can look at for God's character and His Word. You can read the Bible. You can jump into that if you're not doing it. Some of you have not read the Bible in months and years. I know. I know. I've been there. You can change that. You can start reading the Bible right now. We made a little Lent card, Bible challenge, that'll get you through the Gospel of Luke between now and, um, and Easter. Read the Bible. If you're not, that needs to change, and it will change you. And when you read it, say this prayer. Say, Lord, show me who you are. Show me, because I've only met you as an idea, not as a reality. Feast on God's character in that way. Second way to feast on God's character is just to name all the provision of God in our lives. A lot of us, we have so much, yet sometimes all we see is what we lack. We just see deprivation. We see what's missing. And that's why we've got to start each day with gratitude. I have to do this. We've got to end each day in gratitude because all that we possess is evidence of God's love. And third and finally, we can feast on God's goodness by extending that love and goodness to our neighbors by doing good for the people around us, the people you teach with, the people you work with, the people you live next door. The more you give away, the more you realize how fun it can be to share. The more you realize how much you actually have. Well, I've got an extra one of those, an extra one of these. Somebody needs that. It's going to give me joy to help that person out. It is an amazing way to be in this world to see how when you take your mind off yourself and look to the needs of other people, you can begin to meet their needs 
with all the things that God has given you and experience gratitude that you can begin to feast even as you give away. That's an amazing thing. I've had that experience and I want more of it. Let's have more of it together as we go on through Lent. So there's the memo from today's story in the wilderness. Recognize your fears, turn to God's feasting. That's the way of true life. That is God's call to Israel and it is God's call to you right now. If I die tomorrow, I want you to know that I said that to you. That is God's call to you right now. So cry out to God and say, Lord, I need you to fill me. And I'm sometimes terrified you won't, but I need you to fill me. That's the call. May those who have ears hear. Amen.